I'm John DiLiberto, and you're hearing the Echoes Podcast from PRX. This week on the Echoes Podcast, we welcome the 28th icon of Echoes and bid farewell to a foundational Echoes artist. Will Ackerman is the 28th icon. He's a guitarist and founder of Wyndham Hill Records. I've got a profile of him from the early days of Wyndham Hill up to the group Flow. Then we remember John Hassel, the trailblazing trumpeter who left the planet on June 26. Before we get to that, you know that the Echoes podcast is an interview show, but Echoes the radio program is all about the music to chill you out. And as we head into this July 4th week, I think a lot of people will be experiencing travel anxiety. But you can ease all that with a subscription to Echoes Online. That way, when you're stuck in traffic, waiting at the airport, or waiting for that train, just sync up your phone with the Echoes app and hear the latest Echoes shows, non-narrated shows, and exclusive streams. Go to echoes.org to find out about Echoes Online. That's echoes, E-C-H-O-E-S, dot org, O-R-G. Or just download the free Echoes app from your usual app sources. And now let's hear from the musician who started so much of it all, the 28th icon of Echoes, Will Ackerman. Will Ackerman didn't want to be CEO of one of the biggest independent record labels of the 1980s. It just turned out that way when Wyndham Hill Records became so successful and influential in that decade. Will's plan was to just become a guitarist. He accomplished that as well and, through both endeavors, launched the fingerstyle guitar renaissance and the instrumental surge of the 1980s. His music is still influencing musicians today. Will Ackerman has been a carpenter, a surfer, and a record company executive, but he's still best known as the founder of Wyndham Hill Records, which he created for the sole purpose of releasing an album of his own solo guitar music. You know, I truly just hoped desperately that I would sell the 300 records that was the minimum pressing that uh, the record presser would, would take from me, and I couldn't have possibly envisioned any of this. was In Search of the Turtle's Navel, the first of many enigmatic titles for Will. I still remember writing to him to send a copy to my radio station at the time, WXPN in Philadelphia, after reading a review in the radio trade publication Walrus in 1976. On the back of the turtle, Wyndham Hill became one of the biggest independent labels of the early 1980s. 
They were the fountainhead of a new instrumental music and launched the careers of Liz Story, Alex Degrassi, Michael Hedges, and especially pianist George Winston. The label spawned countless imitators and they became the poster child of a music movement called New Age. Well, I mean, I've told people publicly that if I find the guy who coined the term, I'm going to nail his forehead to the wall. I, I hate the term and always have. The New Age backlash didn't begin until major labels entered what had been an indie market. They came in, they put the big advertising bucks in, that they had to come up with a name, New Age, that they had to beat that to death. Um, and they glutted the market with a lot of undifferentiated product, which rather soured, you know, retailers. But Wyndham Hill was always the highest peak, and years later, their albums are still influencing musicians, from acoustic guitarist William Tyler to electronica pioneer Moby. I still remember um, the first George Winston record my mother got. In, in a weird way, it was kind of a turning point for me because that was the first, almost at the time, mainstream record that was just instrumental. I'd sort of forgotten about those Wyndham Hill records and there were really some beautiful records in there. Even younger bands like Balmeray and Hammock cite Wyndham Hill as an influence. Mark Bird from Hammock. I've always been a fan of Brian Eno and I've always been a fan of alternate tunings and that was my Michael Hedges, William Ackerman kind of influence. has always disparaged his own guitar technique compared to other artists on the label. He likes to tell a story about his only lesson with the late guitar legend Robbie Basho. Robbie realized that there was just nothing of the disciplined musician in me and sat me down and said, I think you want the short lesson. And I said, okay, yeah, I want the short lesson. He said, okay, play the guitar on your left knee and don't be afraid to feel anything. And he put his hand out, I gave him 20 bucks, I left him, that was it, you know? But it was a damn good lesson, actually. Um, I mean, I, and I, I thought about those, those lines for a long time. Ackerman would eventually put two Robbie Basho albums out on Wyndham Hill. Ackerman's style is indebted to people like the Okaki, John Fahey, and Burt Yanch, but he's developed a distinctive sound that he claims is born as much from intuition as intellect. It's his use of open tunings that has been most influential, but he says he doesn't even really know how he tunes his guitars. In point of fact, all I do is slack the strings on a guitar, I begin tuning it up, I find a sound that I like that seems to, you know, pardon the metaphor, but, you know, strike a resonant chord in me at the moment, and I begin composing in it. It makes composing much more an act of discovery than preconception. It's all wide open, you have no idea where you are. So it's a new landscape every time, and uh, it's, it happens to work for me.
Ackerman sold his interest in Wyndham Hill Records in 1992 and recorded his last album on the label, The Underrated Hearing Voices, in 2001. He decamped to Vermont from California, where he established his Imaginary Road studio and then a label, producing a variety of artists including Todd Boston, Jeff Oster, and Jennifer Kimball from the duo The Story. In 2004, he won a Grammy Award, his first, for his album Returning with newly recorded versions of his classic tracks. In 2015, the quartet Flow was formed out of what originally were supposed to be sessions for a Lawrence Blatt album. The band takes its name from initials of its four members, pianist Fiona Joy Hawkins, guitarist Lawrence Blatt, trumpeter Jeff Oster, and Will Ackerman. Fiona and Lawrence describe the mix. I probably bring a little bit more classical to the group. I think there's also a misconception that we can actually choose how we sound and the direction that we're going and I don't know that we can I think we just do what we do I think that's why we work yeah and yeah no and, and I do probably bring a little bit of classical because that's my background and um, you know you're very Mine rhythmic well. yeah. yeah Will's very Wyndham Hill and and Jeff's got some jazz happening and, and you put it all together and that's why you've got something that's totally unique we we didn't make any choices to sound like anything That makes sense when you hear the unlettered flow utility musician and co-producer Tom Meaton talk about Will's creative process, which he discovered when he came to work with him in 2009. I thought it was going to be, oh, I'm going to get to see how Will produces records, but oh, he produces records by saying, I like it, I don't like it, I like it, I don't like it. And that's, <laughs> you can't decode it because it's completely emotional. than his 70-something years, trim with shaggy blonde hair, ice blue eyes, and a ruddy face. Will Ackerman seems like a pretty happy guy, but he's frequently asked why he writes such sad music. In fact, I asked him that in our very first interview in 1990. I don't think of myself as a terribly gloomy fellow, but you know, most of my music is, maybe. I think I'm basically doing the same thing that I always did which is to write, you know, painfully sad melodies that I have no idea the origin of. But apparently there was something underlying Ackerman's musical melancholy, a bottomless emotional abyss. In a 2004 interview, Ackerman told me the real story behind his music, which began when he was put up for adoption as a baby. His stepmother was apparently manic depressive. My mother committed suicide when I was 12 and it was I who found her hanging in the shower that you know that's not a good way to start your 12th year after that I was pretty much shipped out to the east coast to school and incredibly lonely I mean you know uh, 
just you know amazingly needy and, and spending Christmases away from home and that sort of thing. It was really really painful. I I ended up being prey of a of a pedophile um, and had a you know a hideous uh, abusive relationship with a teacher for many years. Um, you know, so a lot of damage was done. Ackerman's song, The Impending Death of the Virgin Spirit, was written for his mother. understand why Will Ackerman found refuge in music, picking up a guitar right around the time his mother died. Music is where he ran when the world became too difficult. It's a language that touched me as a kid, you know, in an almost mystical way. Um, so I, I love the metaphor of it. I love it that it's not telling, especially instrumental music, I mean, which is, I think, what I've always gravitated to the most perhaps is you know it's a place for you to go into it's a huge wide open metaphor and I, I just think it's a, a, a beautiful contemplative space contemplative spaces for nearly half a century. He is number 28 of 30 icons for 30 years of echoes. Will Ackerman has played live on the show many times, so on the Echoes website, I've pulled out a 2005 performance that includes David Cullen and Jill Haley. I'll have a link for it in the posting for this podcast, or just head over to echoes.org. While you're looking for something to play on your summer tripping, check out the Best of Echoes 2021 so far. It's our favorite 30 albums from the first six months of this year. It's up on the website at echoes.org. And now, a sad time. We lost John Hassel, the iconoclastic trumpeter who created his fourth world fusions that embraced Ghanaian groove and hip-hop beats and sampling. I was privileged to know John a bit. I began interviewing him in 1986 and continued talking to him well into this decade. He was a musician who a lot of people didn't know about except all the musicians inspired by his sound. He is a tribute to John Hassel. Pioneer of ambient and techno tribal music has blown his final note. Trumpeter John Hassel left the planet after a prolonged illness on June 26, 
2021. He was 84 years old. Although he began working in the mid-20th century, he was already a 21st century musician. His music roots, though, go back to Karlheinz Stockhausen, Lamont Young's Theater of Eternal Music, and playing on the very first recording of Terry Riley's In C. He created the sound of techno-tribal music that was brought to popularity in collaborations with Brian Eno, and his distinctive trumpet sound has been adopted by musicians like Mark Isham, Nils Petamolder, and many more. I first heard John with his debut album, Vernal Equinox, in 1977, and I've interviewed him several times since 1986. We look back on a musician who is still pushing the sonic envelope. I'm sort of an evangelist for his music. I, I really think it's important music, and beautiful music too. With John Hassel, he's absolutely the the musician's musician. The innovations that I think he's brought through have filtered through and through a, you know a lot of people's work. He's beyond the original guy. I mean, everybody who else is is original still got it from John, as far as I'm concerned. That's producer Brian Eno, synthesis Steve Roach, and film composer Jeff Rona. They are among dozens of musicians who have sat at the bell of John Hassel's trumpet and been influenced by his fourth world music. Born in Memphis and a student of avant-garde demigod Karlheinz Stockhausen, Hassel made the turn with many others towards a new tonality in the 1960s. Robert Rich. I think I first saw his name on uh, the back of Terry Riley's In C that the recording that was made in 1968 and uh, you know I think one of the more seminal recordings from the 60s Terry Riley introduced me to Lamont back just in the time after we had recorded NC. That's John Hassel. In New York City, he began working in Lamont Young's Theater of Eternal Music. It was a group that performed compositions that lasted hours, sometimes even days. At that point, you know, people were um, discovering a lot about the nature of sound itself. When you have a something which is static, you have a chance to see your own rise and fall against it in some way or another, and I think that was in keeping with uh, what was going on in the 60s apropos of experimentation with drugs and, and learning about physical responses and sensory responses and that kind of thing. That was all part of, you know, op art and the, the whole how you can screw up your head and, and vision and ears and everything uh, to, to come up with some new uh, take on things. Uh, Lamont was certainly at the forefront of that. Through Lamont Young, he found Indian singer Pandit Pranath. Pranath began singing the patterns that I was playing only, you know, 20 times better and faster and more interesting. And, and uh, at that point, the lightning bolt hit me that, in fact, I, I had better uh, settle down and do this one-to-one -one work of learning to play what I hear and hear what I play. 
uh, in, in the way that, um, that is demanded if you go into studying raga. Steve Roach. The fact that John Hassel studied with uh, Prandit Pranath and learned that vocal style, it just feels like he's transmitting that through his trumpet playing. John Hassel adapted the flowing, note-bending oral calligraphy of Indian raga to his trumpet playing. Rather than the trumpet blare, Hassel created a unique, breathy style, which was accentuated when he started using a harmonizer. That's an electronic device that doubled his trumpet melodies. Well, I've always been interested in parallel intervals, uh, as in Gregorian chant, for example. So the, when the idea, when the capacity to do that without having to teach someone to play everything that you're playing uh, a fourth or a fifth away or, what, or whatever interval comes along. It's a, it's a technological marvel, very hard to pass up. Brian Eno produced John Hassel's groundbreaking album, Fourth World of Volume One, Possible Musics. Part of his playing is to do with understanding that all of that isn't additional, all of that processing and so on. It's very much part of what he does. In fact, I, I always am surprised that all these electronic music magazines don't pay more attention to him because he really is one of the electronic composers of the day. You know, he's one of the most interesting people in that area. John Hassel developed a pan-global sound that used African pygmy voices, Balinese gamelons, and Senegalese drumming in intricate, shifting mosaics. He wanted music that spoke to the world. Let's say there was a computer profile of an average man in the world. Put all the physiognomy, um, all the color, skin color, all the everything together, and what would you come out with? You'd come out with a citizen of the world, okay? And a, one of the ideas that I have is to make a music which has that kind of universal appeal. Synthesist Robert Rich took it to heart. Possible Musics was an album which I think showed a lot of us that you could make electronic music with acoustic instruments and uh, could create a level of, of intensity and hypnotic trance using um, traditional rhythmic motifs and uh, incorporate avant-garde vocabulary as well. John Hassel has left a stream of influences on devotees as long and curving as his trumpet melodies. Peter Gabriel's Passion, David Sylvian's Gone to Earth, Norwegian trumpeter Nils Petamolver, and trumpeter and film composer Mark Isham have all benefited from the influence of John Hassel. One of the reasons Ben Neal created his mutant trumpet was John Hassel, who became his mentor. John was the first person who really said to me, oh, you know, I really think uh, you, know, you should do something with this. And of course, for me at that point, uh, I was very much uh, 
enamored with uh, the work that he was doing from the point of view of you know taking the trumpet into this whole other realm of creativity and uh, the albums he was doing with Brian Eno and everything. Norwegian trumpeter Nils Petter was also inspired by Hassel. I heard possible music uh, of the fourth world, the, the, his, and I was like, wow. And I was, uh, suddenly it was like I was drawn in and I, I started by uh, everything from him, from um, places where he plays like David Sylvian in the mid 80s and, uh, and also the trumpet solo on uh, Houses in Motion from Remain in Light. I think he is a great master. John Hassel is a bit like the famous Brian Eno line about the Velvet Underground. Not many people bought their albums, but everyone who did went out and started a band. In Hassel's case, they went out and started opening up to a global sound of magic realism fueled by electronics. Steve Roach. Influences are so deep and so um, probably co-opted is the best word, where it just continues to get heard by other people and they don't know where the original source was which many times leads back to, you know, to John. Jeff Rona. You know, he's, he's one of those, those pioneers whose contribution to the genre still hasn't really been acknowledged, probably never will, unfortunately, and that's, that's kind of the sad truth of a lot of pioneers, you know. Oh my God, you mean I failed again? Here I am trying to sell out over and over and over and over, and I just can't seem to do it. technique, fame, or innovation, John Hassel's music has always been about the spirit. You can hear it in his 2009 album, Last Night the Moon Came, Dropping Its Clothes in the Street. The title's from a 13th century poem by Rumi. Last night the moon came, dropping its clothes in the street. I took it as a sign to start singing, falling up into the bowl of sky. I tell you, Rumi is, a, is to me, the, it's so uh, appealing because um, he has this combination of this ecstatic approach to existence. When he's in this ecstatic state, he could just as well be talking about a lover or whether it's, he's talking about God. So it's uh, this mixture of the spiritual and the sensual uh, that is anytime that appears, I'm usually all over it. Over the last several years, John Hassel suffered from ill health. In 2020, Brian Eno launched a GoFundMe campaign to aid the ailing musician. But he continued creating, releasing a new album in 2020 and projected releases in 2021. 
It's often easy to consider John Hassel intellectually. We can contemplate aspects like his Indian raga influences, his studies of third world cultures and music, his use of technology, using harmonizers to multiply his solo lines, his embracement of hip-hop rhythms, and on and on. And I love all those aspects of John, but that's not why I listen to his music. I listen because it took me into other worlds. His sound was layered and dense with texture. On albums like Fourth World Volume 1, Possible Musics, and Marifa Street, it's like walking through a rainforest, except it's a rainforest that's mutating, constantly shifting under your feet as the fractals of nature were unfolding before your eyes. And weaving through that jungle like sentient smoke was John's trumpet, refracted through harmonized shadows and delays. John was a sensual player, his sound was intentionally breathy and notes drawn out and bent. Later in his career, under the influence of Ry Cooter, he unplugged to reveal his pure human trumpet sound. John Hassel made music that touched the deepest, most remote parts of your soul. John Hassel, gone at 84, a 21st century musician from the 20th century whose music will reverberate into the future. Pretty sure we're going to be hearing a lot of musical tributes to John in forthcoming months. Next week in the Echoes podcast, I've got another icon of Echoes, Kitaro, the famed Japanese electronic artist. He's the 29th icon of Echoes. I'm John DiLibretto. This has been the Echoes podcast from PRX. See you next week, tonight on the radio somewhere in the country or at Echoes Online right now or whenever you want.